In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. The act of seeking out help for a mental health episode can be a challenging first step. Many of us begin with our primary care doctor who directs us into a system that fails to recognize the uniqueness of our situation. We need to understand there are options. However, effective psychological interventions have an awareness problem. There needs to be more education on evidence-based therapies at the front line. Back in episode three, we discussed cognitive behavioral therapy. On today's podcast, Roger and Sean welcome Dr. Agnes Linda into the studio to discuss dialectical behavior therapy. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I'm Sean, doing the introduction. Roger, how are you today? Doing great. Happy to have our special guest in the studio. We do have a special guest. We're also missing one person, uh, Kelly. It's a school day. I hope you're changing the lives of our youth. But we are welcoming welcoming uh, into the studio uh, Dr. Agnes Lenda. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are See, you? I'm doing great. It's midday. Mm-hmm. You know, normally we'll get in here on a weekend, sometimes early in the morning. So it's always nice to do this at lunchtime. Midday, midweek. Midday, midweek. Mm-hmm. Switching it up. First, let me uh, officially uh, do the introduction. Uh, Dr. Agnes Lenda is a licensed psychologist, board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology by the American Board of Professional Psychology and director of our Dialectical Behavior Therapy Center here at Center for Integrated Behavioral Health. Welcome. Thank you. So happy to be here. Yes, we also make you write all of those. Yeah, every every time time you have to sign something. Mm -hmm. And are they all on your uh, business card? Not yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> Can I plug Agnes? Yes. Or Dr. Let's, Linda? Let's, 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 eventually we're going to call her Agnes, but yeah. let's say Dr. Linda yeah. up front. So we, we're a center that um, decided about six, seven years ago that we were going to conduct outcome studies for each one of our patients. So what does that mean? Everyone who comes into our center, we identify the the problems that the person's struggling with. We administer a number of psychological outcome measures and set goals with our clients. And what we do is over the course of therapy, we continue to administer those those measures as well as monitor the decrease in problem behaviors that brought them in and determine over the course of therapy if we're being effective. So if you need to to reconceptualize or change. But most importantly, we developed these outcome studies to be determined, like how effective are we at doing our jobs mm-hmm. and in order to you know, grow as a, as a center and be able to work collaboratively with our clients. And uh, you know, Dr. Linda, working with some of the most difficult clients, which we're gonna talk about today, um, difficult presenting problems, she has consistently been one of our most effective clinicians. Um, as far oh, as measuring. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. So there's a level of expertise here that she's going to bring to our podcast today, you know, talking about dialectical behavior therapy 
and what effective evidence-based care looks like in clinical practice. So um, very successful. She's proven it here through our own outcome studies. And she's taken over our Dialectical Behavior Therapy Center as a director. She's an incredible leader. Uh, she teaches our skills training. She um, works individually with, with clients who are receiving dialectical behavior therapy and, and provides all modes of, of the treatment. So she is an expert on day-to-day applications of DBT. Really looking forward to, to hear her journey with DBT and to yeah. talk about the, the treatment specifically. And selfishly, I'm entering this because I always learn something from, from Dr. Lenda. And I'm coming into this session to strengthen my understanding of DBT versus CBT. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm really interested in where this conversation is going to take us. And I, I'm trying to figure out where we should start. Can, can, we, can we start high level? In terms of psychological interventions, there's lots of, uh, of, of those interventions that one could pursue, right? Mm-hmm. Under that umbrella, CBT is one of them. Is DBT its own stem or does it stem from CBT? I like to tell my clients that DBT is a CBT. It's a type of CBT. Okay. It does incorporate the same mechanisms of action and mechanisms of change. Mm-hmm. The delivery is a little bit different and it's more intensive in that there's that skills training component where clients come in two hours a week yeah. in the group setting and learn skills. All right. So let's go back before we go into all those components. How was DBT established? Uh, Marsha Linehan is a brilliant psychologist. I think she's been named as one of the most influential scientists mm. of our lifetimes. She personally struggled with a lot of the presenting problems that our clients struggle with, like chronic suicidality, okay. self-injury, mm-hmm. intense up and down emotions, difficulty maintaining relationships. And she pursued a career in psychology in order to help people like herself. And she had actually started out in research of suicide, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what predicts suicide and how to stop it. And in that course of her research, she was able to identify, okay, this is what makes people want to end their lives. How can we change that? How can we help them build a life worth living? Mm -hmm. And she went on a journey, not only through her graduate school, but her personal life. Um, She was devoutly religious, but she also was open to learning about Buddhism and Eastern traditions, which also helped inspire a lot of the skills that we teach in DBT. Um, I'm going to reveal a little bit. Yesterday, I I went into a little bit of a deep dive of Mm -hmm. her, and I found some incredible videos of her being interviewed, talking about some of the specifics. Very interesting person. Very easy Mm -hmm. to listen to. Yes. She talks very frankly, which I appreciate. Yes. Uh, I enjoyed all of those. I'm actually going to include a link to that destination in our show summary where everybody can view those individually. It appears as if there may have been a documentary film. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's about her specifically or just about DBT, but uh, really great to watch those clips. Maybe mm-hmm. we'll play a few over the course of this conversation. Yeah, Marsha Linehan also published a memoir outlining this journey mm-hmm. called Building a Life Worth Living. <laughs> oh, appropriately named. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the name of this podcast, Radically Genuine, is a concept that's um, born of DBT. Yeah, so let's let's talk about the name of this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those who have been listening to us, 
it was a suggestion of Dr. Lenna, Legna, <laughs> Lenda, Agnes here uh, to name the podcast yeah. Radically Genuine. Mm-hmm. And it is the most appropriate name for this podcast because we have three people that are typically in the room that mm-hmm. have different perspectives. And one person who is probably a lot more educated about the topics we're discussing, but we try and find an equal playing ground. And is that what Radically Genuine is? In essence, yes. It's this idea that we treat each other as equals, as humans in the room. Mm-hmm. There's no hierarchy. We oh, are. I, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> We're all human beings who come in here. We all have emotions. We all struggle. And, you know, some of us have developed different tools and we have different learning experiences that we can share with one another. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, it's important to be genuine, to be honest, to be frank. I've got a great idea for this room. Um, if you follow Notre Dame football, before they go out, they slap their hand up on the sign. What does it say? Play like a champion today. Mm. I'm going to put a sign up on this wall that says there is no hierarchy. <laughs> <laughs> as, as a reminder to be radically genuine. And I think it'll provide a little more balance to our conversations. So <laughs> I'm interested to know Agnes's thoughts on this. Um, I think one of the discussion points we can get into is like, what is traditional psychotherapy? What is treatment as usual? Mm -hmm. And what makes the umbrella of cognitive behavioral treatment, specifically DBT, different from what would be treatment as usual, what is typically seen in our community? But that concept of radically, being radically genuine as a therapist, like what does that mean for you when you're working with your clients? And how do you think, how do you believe it's different from what might be typically done in a therapy session? Sure. Um, Well, I think in some lines of treatment or therapy, there is a tendency to treat clients as fragile, to not be completely honest and upfront about what you're thinking, what you're conceptualizing, to make sure you're not, you know, hurting their feelings or making them feel worse, when in reality that might maintain a problem in the room. So being uh, radically genuine means saying things that may be painful to hear and ultimately will help move the client in the direction of their goals and values. Mm. All right. I take back what I said about you, Roger. <laughs> I think you have been radically genuine with us in this room. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> so my, one of my critiques of traditional therapists and the way that they're trained is there's been this development of like almost therapists speak, right? Yes, definitely. Like they're just kind of reflecting back mm-hmm. um, what the client is saying and they almost have this different persona. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. their therapist persona. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> although I think most therapists would say that they, their intention is to be genuine, it doesn't really reflect that in clinical practice, does it? No. No. And so, like, I know for me personally, like, that freedom to be myself mm-hmm. and uh, to treat that client as, as an equal within the professional realms, of course. Yeah. Like, obviously... Yeah. Um, there's limitations. There, there's limitations. I'm not going to talk to my clients like I talk to like uh, my best friend or my mm-hmm. wife or my because the relationship's different. Yes. But to be truly open and honest about what is happening between the two of us and how mm-hmm. important that relationship is mm-hmm. and the development of that relationship in order to be able to reach those goals, like it does require us to be clearly and openly honest about yeah. what we're thinking and what we're feeling. And sometimes that includes the relationship in the room. So I've told my clients, hey, you you know what you just said is very hurtful to me or this is irritating me. Mm. I don't shy away from that. 
And how does that benefit a client? Well, if it's irritating me or hurting me, I'm sure it's irritating or hurting people in their lives outside of that room. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think the best relationships are ones that people can speak honestly with each other mm-hmm. and you can repair when you oh, do, yes. when you do harm, like when yes. you say something that you, that might've hurt somebody or maybe mm-hmm. you didn't mean in an emotional moment, like the ability to say, I'm sorry yes. and repair relationships is a lifelong necessary skill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've had to do that in my relationships with clients plenty of times. You mean you're not perfect? <laughs> No, not at all. You can model effectively in session two about how to repair a relationship, how to navigate conflict, how to be honest. In your session with a client. In the actual session. Because you have to repair a relationship in there. You're modeling that behavior that you Mm -hmm. then want them to Mm -hmm. model in their own personal relationship. That's interesting. Because I screw up sometimes, right? I'm human. I make a mistake. Mm. I might say something that's inaccurate or an not helpful and it can be hurtful. So then I have to own up to it Mm -hmm. and make a repair and say like, listen, I understand what happened and why it was not appropriate. And I'm sorry. Mm. How can we move forward? That's great. Yeah. These concepts um, probably to the listener don't seem that radical, (laughs) but in in traditional mental health, it actually Mm -hmm. can be quite radical. Um, One of the things Marshall Linehan talks a lot about is how somebody with a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. And we were getting into this about how the treatment was mm-hmm. originally developed. Um, so she she developed the treatment for borderline personality disorder or suicidality. How did it originate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it started out through her suicidality research. Okay. And then in the, the population that most exhibited suicidal behaviors were people diagnosed with borderline personality so disorder. So the traditional form of... Um, psychological interventions mm-hmm. were not being effective no, so she no. needed to adjust her technique exactly. and learn along the way so mm-hmm. it was a series of of failing getting back up again working with people repeatedly mm-hmm. trying new things mm-hmm. and that led her down the course towards uh, what is now DBT well i think yeah. we can't tell the story without talking about Marsha Linehan mm-hmm. um and her having that diagnosis of borderline personality yes. disorder. Herself? Herself. Yeah. Oh, I was not aware of that. But yeah. I think we have to define what that actually means. Because I, I hate saying this word. Am I the only one who hates this word? Like it feels no. so borderline, borderline personality disorder. Yeah. It feels so demeaning. It's very antiquated. Yeah. But let's try to describe it, what it means mm-hmm. for, for the listeners. BPD is a diagnosis which describes a series of behaviors or experiences that a person has in their lifetime. So it's a pattern of emotional instability. Mm -hmm. So people with BPD will report having intense mood swings throughout the day, intense emotions that can increase really sharply, really quickly. And then they might have a hard time coming down. So like if someone cuts me off in traffic, I'll be pissed for like a minute and then it'll go away. Mm-hmm. Someone with BPD might be pissed for far longer than that. Okay. Um, there's also a pattern of recurrent suicidality, either thinking about dying, wanting to die, suicide attempts, or self-injury. Mm-hmm. Chronic feelings of emptiness, difficulty maintaining relationships. And it's not just one of what you're saying. It would be no. multiple things. It's, in, okay. Yeah, it's a constellation. I see. 
And I think what we see is the chronic interpersonal difficulties to kind of be the foundation of this. Often people will describe having a a fear of like being abandoned by another Mm -hmm. person. And that kind of drives a lot of that um, emotional ability. Yeah. And a lot of these clients um, experience their emotions intensely. So they Mm -hmm. feel very raw and sensitive to being criticized, to being rejected. And it could make it very difficult for them to form lasting relationships. Yes. I mean, Marsha Linehan describes it as being a burn victim where any little breeze won't bother us. We don't have burns, but mm-hmm. someone with BPD is like someone covered with burns all over their body. So any little interpersonal cue that's ambiguous or uncertain feels really, really painful and feels like rejection. That's, Whereas that's you interesting. and I, yeah. yeah, we would probably just brush it off. It provides a little perspective of how people may be feeling emotionally uh, when they're suffering from that. Yes, yes. Hmm. And um, Marcia Linehan describes a history of struggling with borderline personality disorder mm-hmm. and a series of failures in her own treatment. So one of the mm-hmm. things that she that she learned was through real lived experience on how other mental health providers reacted and mm-hmm. responded to her. Yes. And um, you read, you did read the memoir. But, I did. Um, traditional therapy um, was a bit invalidating, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Um, yes. And absolutely. she describes this quite specifically about, um, you know, how somebody who is very emotionally sensitive and might even come from maybe an abusive mm-hmm. or invalidating background, might mm-hmm. perceive a traditional type of therapy, therapist, psychologist. Mm-hmm. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, I think there's often a push for change mm-hmm. in therapy, especially traditional CBT. It's very change-focused. And for somebody who struggles with just being able to identify what they're feeling, that push for change can feel like a form of rejection. So in DBT, we balance change with validation, mm-hmm. which means we we validate what's valid, we validate pain, we validate emotions, and then we balance that with like, what can we do in this moment? Sometimes all we can do is practice acceptance mm-hmm. or tolerating the emotion. And other times we can, we can problem solve, we can do a dear man, which is a skill designed to help us assert ourselves in an interpersonal situation. These clients are prone to experiencing like crises throughout the week, right? Mm -hmm. And if they're feeling that emotional sensitivity and they're engaging in suicidal attempts, suicidal thinking, self-injury, they're also prone to a lot of other behaviors to try to regulate that emotion. Mm -hmm. And that could be substance abuse. It could be eating disorders. It could be um, kind of lashing out at people they, mm-hmm. they care about sometimes in just like a way of like kind of testing that person out to see if they're going to stay. Mm-hmm. So in traditional treatments, they'd often reach out yep. to the therapist quite consistently when they're emotionally vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And that traditional kind of psychotherapy hour um, didn't seem to be sufficient no. that they needed more clinical contact. Yeah. And I think there's this tendency to refer to higher levels of care as soon as somebody mentions feeling suicidal or wanting to end their life. There's this knee-jerk reaction of, okay, you need to go to the hospital, which then just reinforces that thinking and maintains the problem. So outsider perspective here, I was not aware of DBT 
until I started working here. Mm-hmm. I had a very small understanding of what CBT is based on the fact that my brother had been practicing it. So if I am somebody who may be suffering from uh, a mental health episode or borderline personality disorder, my normal course of action would be to just seek out therapy, Mm -hmm. not specifically DBT. And I don't even know if specifically CBT. I just think awareness of these psychological interventions is low that people don't know what they should be looking for when they do seek out help. We're in the dark ages of mental health treatment, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Because I, I don't know. And what I'm looking at is everything that I've seen over time is a constant evolution. And, and I feel like we're moving in a direction right now with more evidence-based therapy with CBT and now DBT. It's not mm-hmm. where it needs to be, but aren't we entering into this period of more acceptance? Mm. <laughs> I wish that was true. I think, unfortunately, um, there's not enough awareness of core components of treatments that work. Mm-hmm. And there's not enough accountability in the field. We have a clip from Dr. Lenahan that oh, yeah, if we could me... kind of pull that up, she'll speak to this idea of uh, the importance of you know research-supported treatments. And the battle, I think, that we're all kind of continuing to to face with trying to be able to disseminate evidence-based treatments. Yeah, here we go. I'm a big believer in evidence-based treatment. In other words, I'm a believer in having treatments that have been found in scientific investigations to actually be effective. There are an enormous number of treatments out there that don't have any evidence. And there are an enormous number of problems that we don't have treatments for. The behavior therapist's point of view is that treatments need to be validated. You need to have data that they, in fact, work, okay? And the American Psychological Association would say that a treatment has to be replicated at least three times before you can call it an evidence-based treatment. It's very easy to get one study that shows something works, but then never get it replicated. In other words, other people try to show that it works again, but it doesn't work in the next study. And we have loads of therapies like that. The problem with psychological interventions is that historically, they have been viewed as more art than science. Medicine at one point was also viewed as more art than science. And medicine went from art to science. And now there's all sorts of federal controls on what you can do and that medications cannot be sold if they haven't been determined already to be evidence-based and not harmful. The problem in uh, psychological interventions is that although we now have a lot of treatments that are evidence-based, there's no requirement that I know of hardly anywhere except a couple of states that people be provided evidence-based. In other words, the FDA doesn't let drugs go out that aren't evidence-based, but there's no one saying this psychotherapy can't go out because there's no evidence for it. And that being said, evidence-based treatments are often not being taught in graduate schools. Evidence-based psychological treatments are ordinarily not taught in psychiatry programs. 
there's a requirement in medical school that you can't teach residents and medical students to use medications and procedures that have no evidence. Here's the problem. Many people grew up and got trained before there was a lot of evidence-based treatments. The behavioral treatments were criticized for years as only treating what was called symptoms. I don't think anybody would say that now. The data is too overwhelming for anyone to say it now. But the facts of the matter are you have thousands of people trained in non-evidence-based treatments. So it's in their interest to keep up the battle that, that research is not that important because they could lose their jobs or not be able to practice. So there's a huge incentive, but this is, this is not unique to psychological interventions. It happened in medicine too. So it's just a battle that we haven't won yet to where you, insurance companies require evidence-based treatments. The government requires it, states require it. We have some states that are requiring people to provide evidence-based treatments, some places where they'll pay you more if you do it. We just haven't won this battle yet. Yeah, so one of the things that we're in favor here at our group is to provide evidence-based treatments. Mm -hmm. That means they're replicated over time in randomized clinical control trials. So basically, if we're going to bring a client on who's had multiple hospitalizations mm -hmm. and is suicidal and has real challenges in regulating emotions and being able to gauge interpersonally, our treatment has to be measured by decreasing or even eliminating Mm -hmm. suicide attempts, eliminating self-injury, mm -hmm. and helping that person be able to develop the skills to maintain relationships. Mm -hmm. And that is the value in being able to provide treatments that have proven to do that. So why do you feel like we're in the dark ages, though? That's what I'm struggling with. Yeah, we're in the, we're in the dark ages because I believe we have these effective treatments for mm -hmm. very difficult and complex conditions, but they're rarely administered. So... Mm -hmm. I think the knowledge base of them is actually quite limited. Mm -hmm. They're not disseminated to the greater mental health community. Knowledge base yeah. in terms of therapists or the clinicians being able mm -hmm. to perform them or just with mm -hmm. the clients that may need it? Both. 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 Okay. Yeah. So um, the majority of mental health treatment is provided by master's level clinicians and primary care. Mm -hmm. yeah. So those two combined are what is creating treatments as usual. And treatment as usual has become a prescription pad and just a basic form of supportive talk therapy. Mm -hmm. In master's level program, they are not disseminating evidence-based principles and evidence-based treatments. Instead, they are just teaching therapists, social workers or counselors on how to develop a relationship and a mm -hmm. talk therapy which I think the primary effect of those type of treatments are supportive for the most part. Agreed. And we know that they have very limited effect on complex mm -hmm. conditions and therapists aren't equipped to be able to deal with those multiple crisis behaviors or know how to respond when a client isn't getting better. Mm -hmm. And so they're almost become then incentivized to take on um, clients who are dealing with phase of life problems or just like general like anxiety or low mood or, mm -hmm. or challenges in like um, adjustment a, adjustment or phase of life. And so these clients traditionally, there haven't been trained 
clinicians to be able to work with them and they've got pushed out Mm -hmm. of the mental health system. And, um, when they do enter into outpatient, it's almost been provided like this derogatory term, like the borderline client is spoken Mm -hmm. down to or taught or, um, something to be feared. There's a lot of stigma around that diagnosis and people, I mean, I've had clients tell me that therapists have told them like, I don't work with BPD. Or I don't work with suicidal clients. Now, are they saying that because they don't feel they're effective in their ability to provide treatment or just because they choose not to work with BPD? What is it? What's the main problem? Yeah, I think it's it's the former. They're mm-hmm. not equipped. They don't quite understand BPD or mm-hmm. how to treat it. Mm-hmm. They're unwilling to take on the risk. There's a lot of like cover your ass, hurry out there. <laughs> so if I, if I were um, a potential client and I was mm-hmm. looking for treatment and I'm contacting therapists and they mm-hmm. say, I'm sorry, I don't work with BPD. Mm-hmm. Are those therapists providing some type of um, instructions to them to seek out DBT? Sometimes. Sometimes. I think it depends. But the lack of awareness exactly. is so low yes. that people are not being directed towards the modes of treatment that they mm-hmm. may need. Yeah, I think about half of the clients I see are self-referred. They've done research, they Googled, they figured out, okay, DBT is what I need. So we're going to call that uh, just burnout from the system of Mm -hmm. of having failed after failed relationships with... uh, They're often misdiagnosed. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is the limitations of labels. Like I don't Mm -hmm. like talking about Mm -hmm. it in terms of like BPD. Instead, if we talked about clients who are really emotionally vulnerable, Mm -hmm. have chronic problems in relationship and, Mm -hmm. and, and use crisis behaviors to kind of try to manage the severe distress that we're in, then we Mm -hmm. kind of open that up to the clients who need that help. Yes. But what they are, they're usually mislabeled as bipolar disorder when Mm -hmm. they're younger Mm -hmm. um, because of the mood lability. Mm not really taking into account like the context and the history. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they're just trying to treat a symptom mood lability as if it was like a traditional manic depressive illness and it's anything but that. And so uh, often these clients are placed on a lot of psychiatric medication, Mm -hmm. which tends to um, be a poor, you know, have a, they demonstrate a poor response to that treatment often feel very, um, you know, struggle with like sleep and it intensifies mood and a lot of other problems. And it kind of leads to that or reinforces that invalidation that mm-hmm. exists in the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. So this concept of invalidation is like your experiences, uh, your emotions are, aren't really kind of taken into account under and understood by people around you. Mm-hmm. So when you go into uh, a healthcare center or you work with uh, a physician or a therapist who doesn't have really strong knowledge about uh, the constellation of, of symptoms and experience that someone like this goes through, um, there's this tendency to kind of use this reductionist kind of viewpoint mm-hmm. of like their mood is outside of their control and look yeah. for some pharmaceutical to be mm-hmm. able to treat it. Mm-hmm. And our outcomes are generally, you know, very poor. Mm-hmm. And it leads them, you know, a percentage of clients to kind of do research on their own. And once they come across that diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, they feel much more like understood, like this might mm-hmm. define them and like all the problems that they're going through. It's a, just a, it's a more accurate representation of their own experiences mm-hmm. and it drives them to look for a DBT treatment. So it sounds like a, a lot of self-diagnosis is what's coming into this. That doesn't seem very healthy though from no. an outsider. No, it's not effective. Mm. 
And earlier we were talking about disseminating this treatment. And I think it also gets disseminated inappropriately and ineffectively. DBT, the way it's researched and the way it was designed, has these various components. So we have the individual weekly session, which is also highly structured. We have the skills training component and coaching calls Mm -hmm. that between session contact for crisis. And we also have something called a consultation team wherein all of the psychologists and clinicians who participate in DBT meet every week to support each other, to make sure that the treatment is being uh, disseminated and and uh, done correctly. Mm. Yeah. I'm interested in that consultation team. Mm-hmm. That's not something that's pretty standard, right? Now, no, now why it's not. Do you know why that exists? Yes, I do. It's because working with um, this population can be challenging and demanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to be on your toes. You may have to respond differently than in other situations. Um, and I mean, it's a, it's a pretty intensive treatment, right? There's a lot of components that go into it. So I think Marshall and Ahan designed this initially to, to provide support to therapists to make sure it's being done correctly and mm-hmm. also to be like therapy for the therapist. This can be a, a, a difficult treatment. For those that are in individual practice, mm-hmm. how do they consult? It's a great question. There's really no guidelines on that, mm-hmm. right? Like we're told you know, if you're struggling or if you have any questions, consult with a with a colleague. But there's no real structure to that. You may even be consulting with a colleague who is not effective or may not have the knowledge mm-hmm. that you need in order to intervene correctly. Okay. And, and I think what's... As a member of that consult team, I think mm-hmm. one of the benefits of this is that when you're dealing with a lot of crisis behavior, you know, as a therapist, um, there's a lot that you are going to experience emotionally too. Yes. And mm-hmm. some of that is just like this idea of like being inferior and struggling to mm-hmm. be able to help a, a particular client. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you are struggling emotionally and you're mm-hmm. struggling to be able to be present and being able to ride the waves of some of the crisis behaviors that come up, then it's going to be it's going to be much more difficult for you to be effective mm-hmm. and be able to provide the treatment as it's designed. So the consult team is a way to support mm-hmm. each one of us, but it also you provide like critical feedback mm-hmm. on how you're providing the treatment yep. and to remember certain core tenets of of the therapy, especially mm-hmm. like that dialect between acceptance and, and change because you yes. were mentioning it earlier <laughs> that something that can become invalidating is mm-hmm. when you focus so heavily on the change side of of things yes. where a client may not feel understood or validated mm-hmm. and um you know sometimes actually it's a lot when we're talking about how to regulate intense emotions mm-hmm. you know sometimes there's not anything to do no. about it but to be human yes and then and to feel it yeah um but, you know, for our, our listening audience, I don't know if everyone understands, like, the origins of the, the treatment, what dialectical actually means. Mm-hmm. And no, then, we do yeah. not. <laughs> then how, we do not. You know, <laughs> how that is an integral part of the therapy. Yeah. When we um, have our skills training orientation sessions, I usually begin by explaining that because everyone tosses around the term DBT, DBT, and sometimes they don't even know what it stands for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's dial- dialectical behavior therapy and Dialectical means being able to hold two seemingly opposing truths at the same time. Mm. And the main dialect of dialectical behavior therapy is acceptance and change. 
we can hold both at the same time. So the idea of two truths at the same time could be the perspective of two individuals of of what maybe occurred. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. As well as being able to look where, you know, somebody might get stuck mm-hmm. in two extreme, in one extreme of thinking. Like I had a, mm-hmm. uh, a client yesterday who made the statement that, um, you know, I failed at everything in life. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and you kind of notice that that um, how absolute that is. Mm-hmm. And when I asked her to clarify, she talked about how she failed as as a parent. And there are certainly times in her life where she could look back where she wasn't as effective or present mm-hmm. as she wanted to be. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, there's also um, an, a lot of situations and um, things that she's done to raise her child that would demonstrate like a closeness and a love. So if you just stay stuck on the extreme that you're either, you know, you're either a successful parent or you're failing, you know, you're kind of like, not being able to understand like the gray areas. And this yes. takes us back to a previous <laughs> podcast that we had on, you know, being able to stay away from extremes and thinking mm-hmm. is to, is to be able to accept the the gray and the black and white and the nuance that exists, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. to be human is to be fallible. And uh, there is no like one perfect person. There's no perfect parent. And we can all look back on our lives mm-hmm. and imagine situations and think about points in our life where we fell short Mm -hmm. or create a lot of shame. And if you're vulnerable uh, emotionally, like some of these clients are who seek out DBT, they tend to kind of get stuck Mm -hmm. in those painful experiences and struggle to be able to come out of it. And like this dialectical approach creates this flexibility Mm -hmm. of acceptance, but then also like being able to look at where, you know, we can focus our change and where Mm -hmm. we can move forward in our lives. Mm. Yeah. It's all about the gray and swimming in it. (laughs) <laughs> which can be very uncomfortable, <laughs> right? As humans, we want concrete answers. Yes or no, mm-hmm. all or nothing, but that's not how reality works. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask some questions about the change component? Sure. So um, there are some modes of treatment um, within DBT. You mentioned the skills training, the mm-hmm. telephone coaching, there's mm-hmm. the individual therapy, there's a consultation group. Can you talk a little bit about the modules that sure. exist in, in DBT and how you balance acceptance and change strategies and Mm-hmm. Um, what clients are are learning to actually have the effect on the behaviors that we're targeting? Yeah. Well, the module that clients enter into DBT with is called mindfulness. And mindfulness is a very popular buzzword right now <laughs> in many circles. Um, and unfortunately, is often misrepresented in the media as like being zen, being calm, chill. That's not what it is. Mindfulness means being present to whatever's happening in the moment, even pain. So mindfulness means being present, bringing awareness to your thoughts, your feelings, your bodily sensations, and then being able to create a pause so that you can choose how to respond rather than reacting Mm. to whatever's happening. So there's a regulation component to it. Every skill, including emotion regulation skills, has the foundation of mindfulness. Yes. And yeah. it's, it's a uh, constant like process of training also mm-hmm. for the therapist. Oh, yeah. And these skills that we're teaching all our clients are ones that we're attempting to put into practice every day. I don't think you can really 
provide the treatment unless you are actually doing it yourself. I agree. Every single day. Mm-hmm. And one of the things where I'm training my clients and I'm trying to train myself is to be more of an observer versus a mm-hmm. reactor. Because you look back at kind of your greatest struggles in your own life. You probably reacted emotionally to something. Mm-hmm. But sometimes just the ability to sit yep. um, tolerate, allow, and observe yes. without action yes. is a skill. Sean, you've been trying to teach me that as you you came across our business here and like don't react off of assumptions. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, the, the DBT and some of the components that I've been learning, they have a lot of application to everyone in their lives. Absolutely. Is there anyone out there that's doing DBT for managers? Because I think there's a huge... Probably. I'm going to start the business, you know, patent pending. I'm going to do DBT (laughs) for managers so they learn how to be effective managers because there's so much in there Mm -hmm. that can have you just be more structured in the way you approach everything in life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and, uh, even the component, you you brought up the idea of reacting to somebody cutting you off in traffic or driving too slowly. (laughs) <laughs> Somebody said something to me at a point and said, imagine it's your grandfather driving in <laughs> front of you with your newborn child in the mm-hmm. backseat for the first time. Yeah. Put that into your mind and then react. And I, I did that when I was stuck in Los Angeles traffic a lot. Just imagine the person in front of me was either my grandmother or my grandfather and it helped just bring me back down. It was effective. It was effective. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In mindfulness, we talk about narratives or stories we create in our minds. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you use the word assumptions as well. Mm. Right. So something might happen and we may have a thought immediately. And the thought might be like, that guy's an asshole or, yeah. you know, he's trying to piss me off intentionally. Mm-hmm. And mindfulness allows us to recognize that's just a thought. It doesn't mean that's true or reality. Mm-hmm. So we take a step back and then we might use another skill from the emotion regulation module called check the facts. We think about alternatives, you know, okay, that may be true. What else may be true? Maybe he's old and can't see very well. Yeah. Maybe he shouldn't be driving, but that's another <laughs> thing. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe there's a newborn in the back. Yeah. Maybe the person's having a bad day. Maybe they really have to go to the bathroom yeah. and they can't wait. Yeah. So it's entertaining the possibility that I might not know the answer and I can regulate my emotion. I can decrease the intensity mm-hmm. by thinking of alternatives. So that's emotion regulation skills. They're designed to help us identify what we're feeling and then find a way to change the intensity or to respond in a different way. So modules. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness is Mm -hmm. module one. Mm -hmm. How many weeks does that? It's two weeks. Two weeks. Okay. And that module takes place between every other module. Oh. Yeah. So So you revisit it? Yes, clients get it multiple times in the course of their treatment. Ah, I was not aware of that. Yeah, it reinforces the fact that mm-hmm. it's the foundational skill and it needs to be constantly practiced. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what's the next module? Emotion regulation. That's emotion regulation. Yep. Okay, mm-hmm. and we were touching on that. How many weeks yes. does that go on? Oh, that's the longest one. That's seven weeks. So there's a lot people are learning during that seven weeks and there's lots of practice. Uh-huh. Yes. And there's yes. a group component to it. Yes. So there's other people that are in that group Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. you learning, collaborating? Yeah, absolutely. We go through examples together as a Mm -hmm. group. We pair off. We work with each other. Um, Clients learn from each other in these settings. Mm -hmm. I learn from them every time Mm -hmm. I do a a skills training group. Um, 
and we have homework assigned every week at the end See, of the group. See, this is what I didn't like about the CBT discussion. Nobody homework. wants homework because I just want to come in. I want to sit down with my therapist, yeah. walk out and feel better. What's, yeah. the, what's the homework component? What's the benefit of that? Well, if you're only practicing during skills training, you're going to get really, really effective in that room mm. for two hours every week. And it's not going to generalize to the rest of your life. Mm. So you don't have to call it homework. You can call it practice or between session work. Do you challenge them to pursue something during the week or just yes. to identify moments that naturally come up and use that as the homework or the practice? Both. Both. Okay. Can you give me an example of one of those homework assignments that you may challenge somebody to pursue? Sure. So let's see. This past Monday, we <laughs> learned about accumulating positives. Mm -hmm. It's a skill designed to help fill up our piggy bank. So imagine you have a piggy bank mm -hmm. and that's uh, like a wall, a resiliency factor against negative events in your life. When something happens, inevitably something will happen that will cause pain. It's like a, a withdrawal from your piggy bank. So the less money you have in it, the more you're going to feel it, the more you're going to be hurting. So accumulating positives is designed to add events during the day, during the week to help build up our piggy banks mm. so that when stuff happens, it's less painful and we're more resilient and less vulnerable. Mm -hmm. and, so, and one of the things yeah. that I love about the emotion regulation module is it, it also kind of attends to some of the foundations of health that we've been talking yes. about here. You know, the modern day mental health care system can kind of treat symptoms without understanding the underlying cause. Mm -hmm. So if your clients are like struggling to sleep or they're using mind altering substances or they have an unhealthy relationship with food or they're not exercising, mm -hmm. it's almost impossible to feel well. Yes. And these things are taught mm -hmm. and they're assigned as behavioral homework mm -hmm. for your clients to practice and to make sure that if those foundations of health aren't present, it's very difficult to, to feel good. Yes. And there's this tendency in the mental health field to think, you know, everything that you feel is kind of either related to some underlying illness or disorder that's kind of medicalized, or there's like a complete psychological component to it. Like mm -hmm. you must be doing something wrong <laughs> for feeling this way. Mm -hmm. And it really speaks to that for, for the clients that they can get a much kind of larger perspective on what it actually means to, to feel good. Yes. So for homework um, in group, I, I challenged everyone to think of at least one thing they can do in the week or at least once a day to accumulate a positive event. And we talk about short-term events, which is like enjoying a cup of coffee and long-term events, working towards a value, setting up goals that move you in the direction of your values. Mm -hmm. From there, where do we go? Mm -hmm. Then we have distress tolerance. This is another module. Yes. Okay. Yes. And it's what it sounds like, the ability to tolerate distress. Hmm. It's not distress elimination, which clients sometimes ask for. <laughs> that's, not an, that's not realistic. No. Yeah. No. Distress tolerance is all about not making things worse yeah. in moments of crisis, about being able to tolerate painful emotions. And we teach acceptance-based skills in that module uh, explicitly. Skills called radical acceptance and mm -hmm. turning the mind and willing hands, half smile. All these things speak to the ability to hold whatever's present. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to like it. You don't have to want it to be there. And you can practice being able to, to feel it and write it out. 
So one thing I stumbled upon, and, and you can correct me if this is not in that particular module, was the idea of holding an ice cube. Yes, that's in that module. Okay. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that and mm-hmm. why. Yeah. Yeah, that falls under TIP skill, mm-hmm. which stands for, oh, DBT loves acronyms, by the way. <laughs> There's so many of them. Yeah. So TIP is TIP the temperature, intense exercise, paced breathing, progressive muscle relaxation. Tipping the temperature is where the ice cubes come in. Mm -hmm. So let's say you're having really intense urges to engage in the problem behavior. Mm -hmm. Rather than engage in that behavior and make things worse for yourself, you're going to grab some ice cubes, grab an ice pack. You're going to take a nice deep breath, bend over, mimicking something we call the dive reflex. And that actually works on your parasympathetic nervous system to slow down your heart rate, Mm -hmm. relax your breathing, help physically calm you down. Mm. When the calm body, you can access a calmer mind and then make a decision. How do I want to proceed? Um, I had the question about radical acceptance. Mm -hmm. It seems like a major component. So this falls into that final module. Is is the this the final module or is there another one after? We have one more. There's one more. Okay. Is radical acceptance within the third module? Yeah, it's within distress tolerance. This I stumbled upon one of those videos um, where Marsha was talking about how she came to radical acceptance and, and you mm-hmm. had touched on her spirituality. Yes. And it was almost like that moment for her of how to get to that next step mm-hmm. in, in a, a therapy situation. And talk to me about radical acceptance. Radical acceptance is the state of openness and willingness to engage with whatever life is presenting you. Mm -hmm. And that includes sometimes really painful emotion. Because we know that trying to suppress it, trying to push it away, it's ineffective. It makes things worse. It creates suffering. But pain is inevitable. We all experience pain. Suffering is optional. We don't have to push back. We can open ourselves up. Now, this is all highly abstract. It's easier said than done. Mm -hmm. Um, In our skills training group, we break down the steps of radical acceptance. Like the first step is to notice that you're in denial or that you're pushing away or you're avoiding. Then the second step is to ask yourself, what is it that I'm trying to avoid? And then you observe, okay, what's going on in my mind? What's going on in my body? What am I feeling right now? And over time, it gets easier and easier where you're able to use all the skills, right? Mindfulness, distress tolerance, emotion regulation. You can identify your feelings. You can be mindful of them. You can choose to allow them to be there. And we talk about riding the wave. Mm-hmm. And Roger mentioned this earlier, riding the wave of emotion. Emotions are like waves. They come and go. They have peaks. And they crest and then they fall. Sometimes they feel like tsunamis. And we can ride those waves nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Um, well, before we move on, I just wanted to mention that radical acceptance is really helpful in situations where we cannot change what is happening or we cannot stop painful emotion Okay. from starting. You can only focus on what's next. Riding the wave. Riding the wave. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. There's some things we can't change in life, right? Like I, as much as I would love to, I, I will not be a WNBA player. Mm-hmm. I... <laughs> I don't have the uh, aptitude. Don't give up on your dream yet. (laughs) (laughs) I have many limitations when it comes to that. I don't think I meet the age or height requirement. (laughs) So struggling against that's just going to cause me more pain. If Mm -hmm. I can radically accept that it's not going to be part of my life, 
that's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. I may have to grieve and feel a loss, and then a sense of peace will follow. From radical acceptance and that mm-hmm. module, then we go into the final module? Interpersonal effectiveness. Interpersonal effectiveness. Yes. Now, I'm trying to come up with my own definition of what that may be based on those words, but why mm-hmm. don't you explain it to me? Yeah, it's what it sounds like. It's being effective in our relationships. So we learn how to make relationships, how to create them, how to um, clarify priorities in our relationships so that we're not doormats or we're not pushovers. I've got a question for you. Yeah. If, if you have a brother. I do. You know, speaking for a friend. And, <laughs> and his brother can be like dangerously naive sometimes about certain <laughs> subjects. How can you help? You know, what's the most effective way yeah. to communicate to that? Smack scene? the sign on the wall that says there is no hierarchy. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, Sean. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> for a friend, answer the question uh-huh. for Roger. <laughs> so, so I think what you're referring to is, um, you know, we were talking about those struggles with mm-hmm. maintaining relationships and yes. how hard that can be. And this part of the treatment really focuses on specific skills that mm-hmm. someone can employ. Can you talk about what what those skills are and what they're designed for? Sure. Um, In standard DBT fashion, we have several acronyms to follow. (laughs) Uh, We have a dear man, which is a skill designed for helping us get what we want, for asserting ourselves, having our opinion taken seriously. Um, It doesn't mean it'll necessarily work, right? You still may not get what you want or the other person may not respect your opinion. It just increases the likelihood Kind of like an assertiveness training, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it just breaks down the steps of, you know, describe the situation, express your thoughts and feelings, assert what you want, reinforce or reward the other person's behavior, stay mindful, act confident, and negotiate if you have to. Dear man. Dear man. Yeah. And a lot of these skills that you realize, that, you know, they're learned in, in mm-hmm. your social environment. And, yes. And so if... If you haven't been exposed mm-hmm. to this type of modeling and teaching, mm-hmm. yep. you're at a skills deficit. And yep. that's like a that's a more radical way to look at problems of living and mental mm-hmm. health problems. Like um, you could be at a deficit of learning mm-hmm. and uh, a behavioral treatment like DBT actually views clients as having skills deficits. Those skills can be learned. Those skills mm-hmm. can be developed. And then mm-hmm. you can decrease emotional suffering and problems because you develop these skills. Exactly. These are all skills that I would like to learn though. Yeah. I'm, they're life skills. They, they are. are. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is this is designed initially for someone with a BPD diagnosis, mm-hmm. but we're starting to see this as a treatment and its core components being widely applicable Mm -hmm. for a lot of situations. Mm -hmm. Um, Almost anyone could benefit for it, but obviously Mm -hmm. if you're struggling more with intense emotions and problems related to them, you benefit more. Exactly. So I'm going to throw out a radically genuine idea. We've talked about a generation of uh, children and adolescents struggling with resilience. Mm -hmm. We've, we've had conversations about the school system and education why isn't there, I mean, there's a health class that was taught in, mm-hmm. in high school. Why isn't something like DBT uh, applied to an entire generation of our youth to educate them, to give them the skills that they need mm-hmm. in life? Because mm-hmm. I feel like there's so much that could be taken away from this. Why isn't it yes. part of a curriculum? I don't know. That's an excellent question. It and, should be there. And if one there's that- a teacher listening, you know, 
let's let's find a way to adapt the learnings that come from this and put it into a standardized curriculum within the education system. I feel like it benefits an entire generation. I have a I have a client who's in DBT who's a teacher and she mm-hmm. was speaking to this, you know, in, in our last session mm-hmm. um, about how these skills are lifelong skills mm-hmm. for everybody to develop and from a preventative model, yes. right? Instead of yes. thinking about mental health as uh, through a disability model, mm-hmm. like let's say if we thought about things through the development of important skills mm-hmm. and those skills are protective in nature mm-hmm. and they improve your ability to cope with the inevitable challenges that life's going to bring. And this is what I love about dialectical behavior therapy because that whole acceptance component says, hey, life is painful. Yes. Yeah. You are going to struggle. Yeah. And the fact that you're feeling this pain in relationship to this event mm-hmm. doesn't make you disordered. It actually makes you human. Mm-hmm. And your willingness mm-hmm. to accept that and be as effective with pos- as possible helps you actually feel better and become more effective. Because let's face it, sometimes like the biggest problems that we exhibit in life is we already make a bad situation worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like, let's see, you just stopped <laughs> making bad situations worse. Like mm-hmm. you just handled it uh, as effectively as possible. That goes back to what we were talking about earlier about like the ability to repair relationships, yep. mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like not all relationships have to crash and burn, no. right? Like you can actually get stronger in your relationships through the challenges that, that exist, your ability to communicate and be understood mm-hmm to be able to negotiate, um, to be able to say you're sorry. Like all these yes. are skill-based treatments, are skills in the treatment that are actually modeled. And that's what mm-hmm. my, my next question for you is like, mm-hmm. how is this integrated then? What does an individual dialectical mm-hmm. behavior therapy look like mm-hmm. um, when it's part of the comprehensive treatment? Not this idea of DBT informed because there's a lot of people out there that are saying they're doing DBT and they're really Mm -hmm. not. The core components are missing. How do they interact with each other? Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's see. Well, it is pretty structured and flexible at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Dialectical. Our clients fill out something called a diary card, which is a standard part of DBT. It's an opportunity to record the emotions they feel throughout the week, major events, as well as keep track of problem behaviors. Um, And it's really a guideline for us as therapists in the session. So we'll start by looking at the diary card and there's a little space on there for clients to also identify agenda items. Typically they have something that they would like to talk about. Um, For us clinicians, we have a hierarchy in mind. We're gonna target life uh, threatening behavior first. Um, I tell my clients, if you're dead, I can't help you. And I don't treat corpses. I only treat live people. Mm-hmm. So we need to keep you alive. So we target that first if there's any life-threatening behavior. Then we move on to therapy interfering behavior. That's a late canceling, not coming to group, not completing your diary card, things of that nature. Again, if we're not doing the treatment, you're not going to get better. So DBT is for people who want to get better. Mm-hmm. And then we move on to the agenda items. That could be whatever's happening, a problem they need help solving. Sometimes we might do something called a, a chain analysis in, in session. It's a it's a way of like a behaviorally mapping out what happened, what led up to a problem behavior. Then we go back and do a solution analysis, which is we plug in what can you do differently next time to prevent this from happening or to change the outcome. This is the stuff we were talking about, applying it into the business world. Like mm-hmm. Effective mm-hmm. managers DBT do a for great managers. job of a chain analysis, yeah. you know, what yeah. went wrong? Mm-hmm. Why, why, why? Mm-hmm. Let's fix the problem. 
and then move forward and, and it's problem solving. Yeah, it is. Mm. And um, I think as therapists, we do a lot of modeling. We model how to not only repair, but how to maybe handle situations. Um, you know, in other forms of therapy, they might say, I don't tell my clients what to do. We do. <laughs> we make suggestions like this is going to help or this is going to be effective. Or they may engage in ways and we may just say like, that's not effective. That is not going to help you in this situation. Mm. I think that's part of being radically genuine. Yes. Right. You, yes. It, you're not just sitting there as a passive member, mm -hmm. uh, like kind of guiding the client and, and like assuming that they're going to figure everything out. Mm -mm. We do accept that there are skilled deficits, mm -hmm. either from uh, what they've learned growing up or what they've been exposed to. Or just that biological temperament aspect. Yes. Right? Like there's yeah. always this kind of this connection between, you know, biological vulnerability and your experience in your environment. Mm -hmm. And that biosocial mm -hmm. model kind of drives us. So we, we're aware of that. And we've dedicated our lives to being able to kind of learn what these effective mm -hmm. components of a treatment are. And so we do use our expertise to be able to help them while at the same time mm -hmm. accepting that we're equals. Yes. We're both humans. We're both fallible. Yes. Yes. And uh, we develop that collaborative relationship mm -hmm. that way. And we respect their choices. I mean, if they choose to act ineffectively, okay, have at it. Then you have to accept the consequences of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, then that's the learned behavior mm -hmm. over time is, is the failing, the failing, and then realization yeah. and then trying new things. Mm -hmm. And you're right. The, the component of not having the model, not having the experience of what behavior is appropriate through cultural or the way that you were brought up or just Mm -hmm. constantly being exposed to certain situations, you don't know how to respond. So you may respond how you think you want to respond and you mm -hmm. realize over time that there's a better way to go about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So Agnes, you were talking kind of like how the, the treatment's very kind of contextually based. Mm -hmm. I mean, like you prioritize the problems as they present themselves and you help your client understand or kind of even map out Mm -hmm. all the factors that would lead to problems as a way of solving it. And there, so yes. there's a structure to it um, and you're integrating the skills that you're learning to kind mm -hmm. of create solutions to mm -hmm. solving these, these problems. And that's a lot different than traditional therapy, which doesn't mm -hmm. have that kind of focus, but there's another component to, to the individual therapy or to the entire treatment and it's telephone coaching consultations. Yes. Yep. Can you talk about the details of that and how you utilize sure. it in your treatment? Yeah, there can be various uses for telephone coaching. Uh, primarily, it's used in moments of crisis for clients. Um, normally, they wouldn't have access to a clinician or somebody who can guide them through a crisis. So they're instructed to call before they engage in a problem behavior because we want to prevent that from happening. We want to help them stay effective. And they can call. We all have our hours that we set and ask for coaching. So we get a brief, very brief call, maybe 10, 15 minutes, and we guide them through whatever is happening. So maybe they have urges to use substances or to engage in self-injury. Maybe they want to lash out. So we help them prevent that behavior and we guide them literally like, here's what you're going to do. And I have them do it on the phone with me. So if someone's in high distress, I say, okay, go to the freezer right now, grab your ice pack. Let's do some paced breathing. Mm. And um, it helps them generalize their learning for in the moment situations. Because when you are in crisis, all that learning kind of whoo, goes off, right? right. Like you flip mm. your lid, your, yeah. the front part of your brain's not working. Yeah. 
So we help re-engage with that part of the brain and to apply what they're learning in real time and yeah. in real life. I imagine that is extremely beneficial. Yes. Yes. And that's a major component of DBT that won't exist in other forms of, of therapy or interventions? No. Yeah, I actually think the the traditional manner in which we approach mental health treatment can cause a lot mm -hmm. more problems. Um, maybe we should get into <laughs> that. Um, and I have my thoughts and you know I have kind of some strong opinions on this, mm -hmm. but just curious from your perspective, where can kind of the traditional models mm -hmm. of mental health treatment actually be harmful or ineffective? The first thing that comes to mind is when clinicians wind up inadvertently reinforcing problem behavior. So let's say they're constantly accepting calls from their client when they're suicidal or self-injurious and they're providing warmth and validation rather than focusing on making the behavior change or stop. Yeah, so that's this idea of reinforcement. That's like mm -hmm. increasing the likelihood that it's going to happen because yes. you are actually receiving um, that love and that mm -hmm. warmth mm -hmm. through a problem behavior. How yeah. does uh, DBT kind of mm -hmm. flip that on its head? <laughs> yeah, um, our clients are instructed that they cannot use telephone coaching within 24 hours of any problem behavior. So it's to prevent exactly. the problem behavior, not to respond All to right, it. New, new yes. business idea, DBT for toddlers. <laughs> <laughs> And parents, <laughs> oh. for the parents to learn those skills. Yeah, it's called parent training, Sean. Yeah. I, we can we have a course for you. We can get you involved <laughs> in it. I think uh, I'll enroll just to learn. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. These, there's these behavioral principles that yeah, are applied to it. Totally. Yeah. Um, we want our clients to be effective. So simply, mm -hmm. like we're going to give them warmth, validation, and praise for being effective. Yes. And the thing about the mental health system, think about it. Like if you're doing really well, you tend to lose the service. Mm -hmm. And if you're struggling, you mm -hmm. get much, you get more attention. Yes. So another way we turn it on its head is we encourage our clients, hey, use coaching to share really good news with me. <laughs> Call me when you've done something super effective and you're really proud and you want to share it. Mm -hmm. And that's the strength of the relationship yeah. component. Um, it's genuine. You know, like mm -hmm. when your clients are doing well and you're connected to their success, you become a cheerleader. You know, yep. you really do feel good. So there's like mm -hmm. an instant gratification component of celebrating their victories. Yeah. Right? It uh -huh. reinforces positive Yes, behaviors. yes. Mm. Things and, you want to see increase. Yeah. And, and to be radically genuine would mean mm -hmm. when your clients are being ineffective, mm -hmm. you're not going to give them more warmth, validation no. for it. You're going to be a human. And mm -hmm. in, in real life, you know, you kind of get punished for those actions, mm -hmm. right? When you're not effective, things don't work out for you. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important. Like if it's not working out for you in the session, like the way that a client is responding to you, that you are open and honest with them. Like mm -hmm. Agnes used that uh, statement. Well, that hurts, you know, when you say something like that or, yeah. you know, I, it doesn't make me feel closer to you mm -hmm. when you talk to me like that. Like yes. this is real, honest dialogue and um you know what's the uh the other view the dialect to that is to you know make sure that when your clients are being effective you as a therapist are really noticing right mm -hmm. and you're responsive to that it might yeah. be somewhat unconscious because they're just being effective but <laughs> knowing where you know how they've developed and how they've made improvements to be really genuinely connected to your clients and excited when they're doing well is an important mm -hmm. piece to this mm -hmm. That is also the third use of coaching calls, repairing your relationship, especially if you had a session and maybe the client felt invalidated or didn't think it went very well. 
rather than stewing or ruminating about it all week, we encourage them to use a coaching call. So let's let's figure this out right now. Let's nip this in the bud. Again, you're modeling those interpersonal mm-hmm. effectiveness skills. And the reason for this is is because uh, traditionally these clients um, have jumped from therapist to therapist, have been high utilizers mm-hmm. of the system in, in and out of hospitals. And that's because of that skill deficit. And if it's not acknowledged within the treatment and targeted in the treatment, um, mm-hmm. they tend to quote unquote burn out a therapist. You know, mm-hmm. that's the word that's kind of used. And that's why uh, therapists who don't understand how to work with these type of clients choose not to take them mm-hmm. because they feel like they're going to get burned out. But the truth of the matter is, is what we learn that um, the coaching calls as a component really enhance the development of skills and mm-hmm. are contribute to the improvement that happens in the therapy. So like when it, when a client can call you at 10 o'clock on a, you know, Friday night and you can respond, sometimes it's only like five, 10 minutes mm-hmm. or really quick. Usually um, it's so it's more effective than maybe six therapy sessions combined. Exactly. And that's the way we have to begin to think about change in the mental health system, we have to be a bit more innovative. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the traditional psychotherapy hour, you know, mm-hmm. developed from like Freudian ways of like uh, thinking about mental health treatment is largely ineffective. That's why we have to think about things in terms of intensive treatments, uh, use of telehealth, coaching, skill-based treatments, t- targeting the problem. The future of effective mental health treatment is skill-based effective research-based interventions provided by somebody who's warm, compassionate, knowledgeable with a, with a, uh, with an evidence base behind them. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, you know, what we're looking at in is expanding. And this is why I said earlier that we're in the dark ages. I think we're actually moving further away Mm -hmm. because if you look at every available statistic, um, the mental health of our country is worsening. So we're seeing increases in suicide attempts, completions, non-suicidal self-injury, and increasing rates of psychiatric medications. And that's of, that's of great concern because when we talk about the invalidating environment and lack of evidence-based care, when you are trying to numb out valid emotions, mm-hmm. that can be in, incompatible with the actual therapy. We don't really have strong evidence at all that any of these psychiatric drugs have an effect on clients who are experiencing what's called borderline personality disorder, that emotional sensitivity and and lability. Even many might try mood stabilizers. We don't Mm -hmm. have really any strong evidence that they have any positive effect at all. And think about the difference in these clients if they view their emotions to be outside of their control right? Mm-hmm. Then you go into a treatment that says, hey, we can learn to regulate our emotions and tolerate mm-hmm. distress. Yes. The ideas just are sometimes are, are incompatible and they're mm-hmm. definitely incompatible with acceptance. Oh, completely. Yeah. And in our emotion regulation unit, we talk about how we need to regulate emotions that are either ineffective or don't fit the situation. We don't regulate emotions that fit the facts that are valid to the situation or that help you engage in a behavior that moves you in a direction or a goal of a goal or a value. We don't need to regulate those emotions. Mm-hmm. We need to feel them. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Feeling emotions is actually, um, <laughs> effective healthcare. Yes. Right. So like yes. if we're going to treat trauma victims or mm-hmm. grief or loss, or you're in a, a bad relationship mm-hmm. or you've just fell short of a goal mm-hmm. or 
in any situation, I think where, where you're struggling, the emotions fit the facts of those situations. Mm -hmm. The, the goal of that mental health care isn't to numb out that experience or decrease those quote unquote symptoms. It's actually to use those emotions to your benefit. Yep. And if you're willing to accept them, you can actually use them to learn and guide you. Exactly. So if a client comes in and they've lashed out at somebody that they love and they report feeling guilty, yeah, that fits the facts. You Mm -hmm. acted in a way that violated your, your values and damaged your relationship. You know, what is that guilt teaching you? What is the lesson here? And it's not to do that again, right? It's painful. I don't want to feel this guilt again. So let me engage in a different behavior next time I'm talking to this person. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time today talking about some of the the details of this treatment, Mm -hmm. how it's different from traditional mental health care. Um, I think we should talk about its robust evidence base, Um, you know, without having all the papers (laughs) and statistics, you know, in in front of me. we have a very strong evidence base for dialectical behavior therapy now dating back to the 1990s. Mm-hmm. So we're talking like 30 plus years of randomized clinical control trials that show that there's going to be a high proportion of people who enter and complete this treatment who no longer en- in- enter into psychiatric hospitals. Mm-hmm. They've gone through having multiple suicide attempts to none. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually meeting the the criteria mm-hmm. for diagnosis of borderline personality disorder at one time in their life going through the that treatment and no longer meeting that criteria. Yes. And that's one of the fallacies of like quote unquote personality disorders, Agreed. which I think influences why therapists don't want to take on this case. It's like almost this false notion that it's ingrained in your personality mm-hmm. and therefore um, you're beyond help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there can be anything further from the truth mm-hmm. is that, you know, going into the effective, most effective treatment with a provider who really understands the therapy and in an expert way can kind of respond to, to you in ways that can help. We see that that person moves through the treatment and decreases a mm-hmm. lot of those problem reactions and improves their ability to regulate emotions and no longer meets criteria. It's mm-hmm. it's an effective evidence-based treatment. Wow. It's, so it's someone going from I am to I was. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, so what else do I need to know about DBT? What's another component? We talked about skills training. We talked about the coaching. We talked about uh, the consultation component. What else makes it unique? I saw something about graduation. Yes. <laughs> how, how important is graduation to the program? Very important. A client graduates when they've met the, the expectation for the treatment. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a long treatment. It's at least a year of skills training. Wow. That yeah. doesn't include um, you know, pre-treatment. That's the phase when mm-hmm. a client's being introduced to DBT before they start skills training. Mm-hmm. So once they've met that year, there's a celebration. We have a graduation for our clients. They get a certificate, a little gift. Um, their clinician comes in and shares about their strengths and their triumphs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, often reflecting upon you know, how hard they worked to get to this point. And it's something that's earned and not given. Not everyone who enters DBT graduates DBT. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a testament to their commitment and to their hard work. And um, they goal is to help reinforce to other clients that this is possible. You too can graduate. You too can make progress. Mm -hmm. And we have rolling admissions. So we have people at all different 
parts of the program at the same time. So that clients model to each other Mm -hmm. how to use skills and they can help motivate each other. Like this was hard for me too in the beginning and now I can do it. You can do this too. Oh, that's great. It's wonderful. So it's the observation of progress that someone new is, is witnessing firsthand. Yes. Uh, That's, that's a big component. And I guess that's where the group portion plays its role. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And some other pieces of the DBT treatment include it being kind of like a stage based approach. So, Mm -hmm. um, Agnes spoke to this in the structure of the individual therapy. A lot of clients are going to come in exhibiting life threatening behaviors and crisis behaviors. And you can't really begin to face past trauma or, uh, address other issues related to quality of life if you are still experiencing such dysregulated behavior mm-hmm. and you're in constant crisis. So the first stage of the of the treatment is eliminating life-threatening behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so when the client is no longer suicidal and no longer self-injurious or engaging in any behavior that could be potentially life-threatening, mm-hmm. then you kind of get this idea that they've developed uh, these crisis survival skills and you can begin to move into other phases of the treatment. Mm -hmm. For example, um, many clients are going to come into dialectical behavior therapy exhibiting some form of potentially trauma and might experience PTSD. Mm -hmm. And the treatment incorporates other evidence-based treatment. So you can go in and once you get to phase two, kind of addressing that trauma through like a prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy. And you continue to... um, move towards creating kind of a life worth living by, you know, addressing other quality life or quality life and interfering behaviors once mm-hmm. the other things are established. So it's a tiered approach that makes sense, right? Like, so I don't ever typically will treat trauma with my clients if they're abusing substances mm-hmm. or they're like cutting or they're suicidal, because once you start facing that emotional pain of the trauma, they don't, haven't really developed the skills to be able to kind of tolerate and regulate that. So that's what I also appreciate about the treatment is that it's, its approach is really based on kind of safety and efficacy mm-hmm. of what works. And by the time the client does get to graduation, they've kind of faced and resolved a lot of really significant problems in their history. And there's a lot to celebrate. Mm-hmm. And so that graduation celebrates that. So where do we go right now in this conversation? Because I feel what I've learned in the time that we've been discussing is is that it is, it's very structured, but I would imagine there has to be some component where there's a commitment from the client to Mm -hmm. recognize and want to put the effort in because Mm -hmm. you can't just show up every week and expect to get better. No. How how do you get that commitment or how do they commit so that they can benefit from this? Well, we have a number of commitment and motivation strategies that okay. we use. And is that done? That's done up front, right? Throughout the treatment. Throughout the treatment. Yeah. It, commitment waivers, mm-hmm. motivation waivers. So whenever we encounter that, we have to address it because if they're not committed or motivated, they're not going to engage in the treatment mm-hmm. as needed. Got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this like transactional kind of a process that that is included in the treatment. So, you know, you're going to influence your clients. Your clients mm-hmm. are going to influence you. There's things in their environment that are influencing them, which are going to be brought into the therapy session. Mm-hmm. And it's like 
this transactional, transactional ongoing kind of process. So it's quite accepted that, you know, on some days you might feel really motivated and feeling good about what you're doing while you might hit like a rock bottom Mm -hmm. on another day. And I always tell my clients, like, listen, if you're taking two steps forward and one step back, you're still going to get to the destination. Mm -hmm. Um, So like that's part of the process is that, and we learn from it. So when we take that step back, um, you know, we have a role in in trying to kind of keep them motivated Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, stick with some of the core tenets and philosophy of, of the treatment um, to be able to, you know, maintain that commitment with them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Like I think we're, we as therapists are part of that commitment process. Agreed. And if, if at any point they feel like we're down on Mm -hmm. them or down on like what has just happened, I think it's natural for them to feel less, less motivated, but Mm -hmm. Hey, we've been here before. Like I tell my clients, like I've seen the beginning, the middle and the end. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes this is exactly what the middle looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, you have the, you have these challenges and let's, let's learn from it. And Mm -hmm. I guarantee you, you know, when, when we get to that, to the destination and the graduation, so much change has occurred. You can look back Mm -hmm. at this period and say, Hey, this is a, this was the driving force in, in me learning and making some changes. So sometimes it's about perspective mm-hmm. and it's about maintaining your commitment to the client. Mm-hmm. So one thing I love about what we do in this room is we record our thoughts, our feelings, and it's a glimpse of a snapshot in time. Mm-hmm. And what I'm learning about psychology and interventions is it's constantly evolving. Yes. And Roger started off saying we're in the dark ages. I love that we're capturing this moment right now and I'd like to go back 20 years from now and listen to this and see how psychology continues to evolve because DBT didn't exist 30 years ago. CBT, you know, didn't exist 100 years ago. It's, it's a constantly learning, trying, evolving, technique-based approach. Can I clarify? Please. Yeah, I, I don't think psychology is in the dark ages. I think um, our approach to the mental health system is mm-hmm. in the dark ages. I think where clinical psychology has failed has been able to disseminate research and connect with, with clinical practice, right? So, um, you know, our role in this podcast is to try to speak more about what actually actually works. Mm-hmm. So psychology has failed in its ability to integrate itself into mm-hmm. the healthcare system. It is dominated by the medical model. Mm -hmm. And these robust, effective, evidence-based treatments are rarely provided. And that's where we're in the dark ages. I mean, we are in a specific area in Pennsylvania. For those of you who don't know where Bethlehem is, we're kind of dead middle between Manhattan Mm -hmm. and Philadelphia. Um, We're a growing region. Um, There's a lot of universities and colleges in our area. But we have this larger Lehigh Valley region. And still to this day, I would say the overwhelming majority of mental health providers and clinicians, either one, don't know anything about dialectical behavior therapy, Mm -hmm. or two, have this rudimentary knowledge of it. And it's either it's misunderstood and it's misapplied. Yes. And so that's where I say we're in the dark ages, because in training programs, it's not taught. It's not understood. And as a greater field, research and clinical practice haven't in, hasn't integrated well enough. So like we were listening to some of Marshall Linehan's videos prior to stepping into this room, 
And you can tell she's she's talking about it from her perspective mm-hmm. in the research lab and the role mm-hmm. of evidence-based practice. Now, she's done tremendous work in um, in developing this treatment and being able to see what works in, in integrated practice. But it's not always easy to speak to those mm-hmm. who don't view uh, our work as a science, mm-hmm. like that it's still like viewed as more of an art mm-hmm. and how you can integrate science into art. And, um, you know, there, that could be that dialectical balance that is achieved, that there's a science base, a foundation, there's a measuring of mm-hmm. progress, there's using evidence-based interventions. And the art is you as the individual, as the person. Yeah. You bring yourself into the room and there is no really, there's no necessarily, there's not necessarily a guide on mm-hmm. how f- for you to respond in every situation. It's just about being human. Mm-hmm. So there's principles that are, are used. And if you fall back onto those principles, I think you're, you're going to serve yourself well. There's an ethics to, to what we do. Mm-hmm. But the art is who you are as a human and mm-hmm. you bring your personality into the treatment. Mm-hmm. And that's talked about in dialectical behavior therapy. Who Agnes is in the room is much different than who I am in the room. But we have to be genuine to who we are mm-hmm. in order for that to be able to, to be effective and connect with the people who are in front of us. Yes. Yeah, and I would say that's probably the primary objective of this discussion today is to have an open discussion about what DBT is to increase awareness and understanding mm-hmm. so that hopefully we could affect more change. And that's going to take time, but this is one step in that direction. Um, We've been talking for a long time, so I just want to thank you (laughs) both for for enlightening me and informing me. Uh, Dr. Agnes Lenda, (laughs) thank you for joining us today. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening. Thank you.